You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? Hey, we are really glad that you're here. I got to tell you, the first two services that we had were at total capacity. And uh, so I'm really excited that you guys came out. And uh, it, it, it confirms what one of my professors, when I was getting my undergrad in theology, what, uh, what he said. He says, people will always come out for three topics. Number one, sex. Number two, the end times. Number three, will there be sex in the end times? So, always. So, <clears throat> but, uh, so some of you know that I grew up in Boston, and, uh, which people always ask me, like, Pastor Bob, you grew up in Boston, but uh, how do you not have the accent? And, uh, well, that's because God healed me. And, uh, but my accent was wicked bad before I knew the Lord. And uh, so, anyway, but we moved around a lot in the Boston area when I was growing up. So, I had uh, second grade fourth grade and sixth grade were new city, new school, new class, okay? So second grade, fourth grade, and sixth, city, uh, and sixth grade, different school, different class, different town. But in all of those grades, second grade, fourth grade, and sixth grade, my teacher's name was Mrs. Roach. That's always kind of bugged me, but nonetheless, it's, it's what it is. And so, but anyway, so this is sixth grade Mrs. Roach that I'm talking about. Uh, sixth grade Mrs. Roach on the first day of class gave us our books, our math books, and then had each of us come up to the front of the class uh, to where her desk was, where she pulled out the biggest stapler I had ever seen in my young life. And she proceeded to staple the last 50 pages of the book shut. And of course, we were all afraid to ask why, because this was a Catholic school. You ask about why people are stapling, you get stapled. So... We didn't ask, but finally someone said, Mrs. Roach, um, why, why are you stapling the, the last however many chapters of the book? And she says, well, because all of the answers are in the back of the book. And I just thought that was an incredible thought, that every answer I needed to all the math problems I had, I was carrying around in the book itself. And she was right, by the way. Thank God for staple removers. And uh, that's how I passed the sixth grade. But... But I became a Christian and I realized that Mrs. Roach was right. She was right about the Bible too, that all of the answers are in the back of the book. And not just the answers to my problems or your problems, but the answers even to the world's problem are found as well. Because it seems like the world is getting worse day by day. And I, I want to give you a spoiler alert if I can, if you're willing to read to all the way of the, to the back of the book. But Jesus is coming back. And not only, yeah, that's... that's worth getting excited about. And not only is Jesus is, is coming back, but he wins in the end. And if you're a Christian and you're on team Jesus, you win at the end. And if you're here and you're not on team Jesus, we can fix that problem uh, before, we, before we all go home. So what I wanted to do in our time together was to take today's message and talk about what's happening in the world as it relates to Bible prophecy. But whenever I talk on this topic, I always feel like I've got to give a couple of disclaimers, or at the very least, preliminary thoughts on the topic. So let me do that as we get started. The first is this, if you're a note taker, and that is that I'm not making any predictions. I don't know the day Jesus is coming back, and anyone who tells you that they know the day Jesus is coming back, you can be sure that person is a kook, all right? Why? Not because I said it, but because Jesus said that uh, but in, in, in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 13, but of that day and hour... No one knows. Maybe you want to underline that. That day now, no one knows. You know what that word means in the Greek? It means no one knows. All right? Nobody knows. Not even the angels of heaven, not the son, but only the father. And it reminds me of this guy uh, named Harold Camping. Harold Camping has been predicting uh, the rapture and, all, all the, and the destruction of the planet since the 80s. And, and, you know, there was a lot of excitement in the late 70s. A guy named Hal Lindsey wrote a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. And then in the 80s, there was a lot of excitement. There was a, a, a best-selling book that came out called 88 Reasons Jesus is Coming Back in 88, followed up by the bestseller 89 Reasons Jesus is Coming Back in 89, which I'm guessing the 89th reason is he didn't come back in 88, so that's the new reason. So, but anyway, Harold Camping 
uh, who has been kind of at the cusp of all this in making these predictions. He predicted the rapture and the destruction of the planet on May 21st, 2011, which of course didn't happen. And, um, and then he changed it. It was going to be October 21st, 2011. And then that didn't happen. And then, uh, at least from what I'm told, he was just so depressed after this whole thing. So sad. Someone went up to him when he was, he was sitting somewhere. Someone went up to him, put his arm around him and said, hey man, cheer up. I don't know what's bothering you, but it can't be the end of the world. And uh, so I like that joke more than I should. So I'm just telling you. So, and I share it whenever I can. But listen, nobody, while Jesus said no one knows the day or the hour, the Apostle Paul did tell us this, that we can know times and seasons when these things are going to take place. So then here's the second thing I want to tell you as far as a preliminary thought, and that is that things aren't falling apart. They're falling into place. Jesus told us the conditions of the world at the time of his return. Jesus in Matthew 24 says it this way, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines pestilences and earthquakes in various places. And all these are the beginning of sorrows. Jesus said, listen, at the very top of this, Jesus says that the season of his return, the times of the end, that it would be a time of deception. That is the first thing that he says, take heed that no one deceives you. Why? Because we are living in an age where it's difficult to even discern what's true. Something happened. It's like, well, did that really happen? Is someone just saying that happened? And, and, and so now, and then, because we have people that if they don't like what it's being said, they just call it fake news. And then, is that really happened? Or someone just didn't like that? And, and it's just all this confusion. There's spiritual confusion like never before. Uh, we, we've got people, I'm telling you, I have, the, I have these conversations with people like, you know, I believe that all religions are basically the same. And, and I'm just like, well, that just tells me you don't know anything about religion. Because, well, there may be some surface commonalities. When you get a little under the surface, there are deep differences. In fact, um, there, there's just, it, it's not even just outside the church, it's inside the church as well, that there's, there's deception and confusion. You know what the number one thing I hear about people who attend Calvary when they want to talk to me or they reach out to me? Number one thing I hear, I've never been to a church that teaches the Bible. That's the number one thing I hear. Uh, or I've learned more in the last three months, six months, whatever. I've learned more in this season being at Calvary than I have in my entire life going to church. And, 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 and listen, and I'm not trying to break my arm patting myself on the back, but can I just tell you something? When did a church teaching the Bible become revolutionary? Like, what else do we have? Like, I just like, you know, I was going to teach out of the Bible today, but man, I read this article in People Magazine. Really, really moved me. Like, like what else? It's all we have. But listen, but it is true. I mean, uh, finding a church that teaches the Bible, I mean, like verse by verse by verse, is like finding a unicorn. Uh, it, it's just, it, it's, it's next to impossible to find. But, it's, but there's, conf there's deception. And then he says that there's wars and rumors of wars. Now, it's hard for us to even fathom this because so many of us live in gated communities. But the 20th century was the bloodiest century in human history. In fact, you may want to write this number down, 123 million. That's how many people were killed in the 20th century via war. It is the bloodiest century in human history. And the challenge is, and why that's so difficult for us to even process, is because we have this belief that we are so much more sophisticated than those ancient cultures. The reality is we're no better because the human heart has not changed. And that's why Jesus says not only that, but he says that, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And you might think, isn't that a little redundant? That there would be like, isn't that nation, kingdom? Yeah, it's kind of the same thing. No, because in the Greek language, what is the nation is this Greek word ethnos, where we get our word ethnicity, which speaks of racial and tribal tensions. And this is important because racial tension and racial reconciliation is part of the national conversation that we've been having in our country over the last three years or so. And whenever I'm asked to talk about it, um, I, I, I always share a couple of things, and sometimes people don't like it uh, because it always involves people becoming a Christian. 
And, uh, and, and, and listen, that's the only solution I have to pretty much anything. Um, but let, let me just share, this is important. Racism in any form is a sin, period. Be, but the problem is, is that our culture is seeking a solution that is really only available in the kingdom of God. Je- uh, uh, speaking of the followers of Jesus, the apostle Paul would say it this way, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. In the kingdom of God, it doesn't matter what your background is. You, we are equal and loved and valued all the same because we have the same Savior and we have the same Heavenly Father. So here's my solution when I get asked about it. And, and I'll say, the best thing that will prevent racism or cure racism is people giving their lives to Jesus because racism is incompatible with the gospel. And then people will say, yeah, yeah, but what about for people who aren't Christians? And then my, my uh, sophisticated answer is, I have no idea. I don't know how you talk people who aren't Christian into acting Christian. I would just encourage them to be a Christian. It makes it a lot easier. But um, I, I'm, I'm a Christian pastor. I believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. And so I view the world through that lens. If you're just looking for general advice on the world's woes apart from God, I have no, I, I don't, I, I, you, need, you need somebody else. I have one solution for everything, and that is people coming to Jesus, right? That's the one str- string on my guitar. It's my G string, Jesus. So anyway, that's good. That's really good stuff. And so uh, anyway, there's more. I have like a musical joke, but most people won't get it. And so anyway, um, so, but, but listen, and if you say, but I don't want that, that's fine. It's a free country. But don't blame God when the world is on fire. And by the way, if you want to press me further on this issue, I really believe that what Jesus is teaching in Matthew 24 is that racial tension is a sign of the end and one of the markers that Jesus' return is soon. But listen, it doesn't make sense when as a culture we reject God, don't walk with God, but then blame God when there's uh, racial tension and division. That to me is madness. So then the question becomes, I mean, what, what is, what, let's talk about what's happening in our world right now. Why attack Israel now? Why is Iran involved with this? And what is happening with the Palestinian people? And, and how does that work as far as people having a claim to the land and all of that? And I want to spend some time talking about all that. But um, the way that we've got to do that is ba- by backing up. We have to back up and then take a running start because everything that we're going to run towards is uh, that we see happening in the world is pointing to a war that's mentioned in the book of Ezekiel, uh, chapter uh, 38 and 39, that theologians call the Magog invasion. Now, chapters 38 and 39 are preceded by chapters 34 through 37. And now you're thinking, Pastor, you got me out of bed to tell me that 34 through 37 come before 38 and 39. Yes, I did. But It's the content that happens in 34 to 37 that precede 38 and 39. What Ezekiel uh, talks about in his prophecies of chapter 34, 5, 6, and 7 is that God promises to reunite Israel into one nation and bring his people back into the land. This was fulfilled on May 14th of 1948 when Israel became a nation. But let's go go back. Let's Let's start in 66 A.D., in 66 AD, the Jewish people rebelled against Rome, uh, who were the occupiers of the land, the Roman Empire. And Nero, who was the Roman emperor, was sick and tired of the Jews rebelling against uh, Rome. So he ordered uh, General Vespasian and the Roman 10th Legion to put down the insurrection. However, in the middle of this, this is two years into it, so now it's 68 AD, Nero dies. Vespasian gets called back to Rome to be... Uh, crowned as the new Roman emperor. So he goes back to Rome and sends his son, who gets promoted to general, General Titus, his son, to end the conflict. So now another two years, so four years after it began, on August 30th, 70 AD, the Roman soldiers broke through the walls of Jerusalem, set fire to the temple, and carried away all the furniture of the temple. And the whole, it was all encased in gold, so the whole thing was melted down. And so 70 AD marks what is called the Diaspora. And that is the time when the Jews were scattered throughout all the earth. Now, it's important to note a couple of things. And this is, I'm gonna get, this is all kind of preliminary to what we're going into. But it's important because up until 2010, just a few years ago, 
There were more Jewish people living in the United States than there were living in Israel. Uh, and that was true, uh, once again, up until 2010. Now there are more Jews living in Israel than any other single place in the world. The other thing that's important uh, to, uh, to mention, and this is one of the most amazing things that we've seen over the last 100 and 130 years or so, is the Jewish people returning and feeling a sense of calling to return to the land of Israel. Now, this all started uh, around 1897 with a guy named uh, Theodore Herzl and the uh, Zionist Congress, and we'll talk about that another time. But in 1918, just a little over 100 years ago, there were only 85,000 Jewish people living in what today is the state of Israel. Today, there are 8 million Jews living in Israel, which is more than any other place in the world. In 1948, when Israel became a nation, only 6% of the Jewish people in the world at that time were living in Israel. Today, about half do. Now, this is amazing because no other people group in the history of the world has gone more than three centuries without a homeland and been able to maintain their national identity. I mean, think about that. When Israel was carried away, I mean, right next to Israel, there was a group of people that were called the Edomites. And you've never met an Edomite because they're gone. And uh, the Hittites were an empire a huge empire in, uh, in the Middle East in, 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 in ancient times. And you've never met a Hittite. So you've never met an Edomite. You've never met a Hittite. You've never met a Canaanite. Have you ever met an Uptite? Well, we met, we met a few of those. There's several of those guys around. But, uh, but you've probably met an Egyptian. Why? Because Egyptians, unlike the others, Egypt has maintained their homeland. And so while other identities faded away, Egypt has continued to thrive over the course of thousands of years. Israel went 1,900 years without a homeland and maintained their national identity. They are the only country in the history of the world to have been a nation, stop being a nation, and then become a nation again. So now, 2,600 years ago, Ezekiel prophesies about a war that is yet in the future, but yet in our world, all of the chess pieces are settling into place. And that's what I want to spend some time talking about as we look at the world in which we live through the lens of the Bible. So let's start. We're going to be in Ezekiel 38. We're going to start in verse 1, and then we're going to, I'm going to read it, and then we're going to explain it. Look what it says. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal. And I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaws, and lead you out with all your army, horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, with great company, with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia, Libya are all with them, all with shield and helmet, Gomer and all its troops, the house of Togarma from the far north and all its troops. Many people are with you. And if you pause there and give me your attention. Now, I, I, I know it's a little odd because it's like all these names that you've never heard of and they might seem a little strange to us. But one of the things that you have to know is that sometimes the names of cities and nations change over the course of time. In fact, you know how old you are. Whenever someone tells me, oh, I'm going to go see the Dolphins, and I'll say, oh, are you going to Joe Robbie? Uh, Because that was the original name of the stadium, was Joe Robbie Stadium. And then it started changing names like every other year. And because I'm not interested in keeping up on all that. I just ch- call it by its original name. And so, and, and I'm like, wasn't it like a shark or something? Like, oh, no, that was like two years. It's called Shark something. And now it's Hard Rock. I'm like, isn't Hard Rock the theater with their guitar? Like, no, it's Hard Rock Live. There's Hard Rock Stadium. I'm like, yeah, see, I don't care. <laughs> and so I just call it Joe Robbie, and I don't even know who Joe Robbie is. And so that's what's interesting. So, um, so names change over the course of time. And I'll give you an example. Like Iran, and we'll spend some time talking about them. Iran was called Persia for thousands of years and only became known as Iran in 1935, less than 100 years ago. In 1935, the Persian government made the request to all countries that they had uh, diplomatic relations with to begin referring to the country as Iran. Iran. Why? Uh, Because the Persian ambassador to Germany suggested the change following the recommendation of the German Nazis. Now, the Germans in the 1930s were going through their own racial issues touting the Aryan race. 
and they suggested that Persia hearken back to their Aryan roots by adopting a new identity as Iran. And Iran is a derivative of the name Aryan. So as we start going through the list of all these proper names, all of them are a place except for the first one. Gog, who's, he's mentioned twice uh, in verse 1 and in uh, verse 2. Uh, Gog is a title, like Pharaoh or Caesar. And so, but all of these names, and this is important, Ezekiel is naming all of these areas according to their original name, just like we talked about Joe Robbie Stadium. All of their original name, which is found in Genesis chapter 10. Now, Genesis, the first 11 chapters of Genesis, uh, not just tell us kind of like how life began and all that, but they tell us how civilization began to spread. And then in chapter 10, we're told about people that, and families, and, and once again, remember there in chapter 11, there's the division of uh, languages and there's confusion, why it's called Babel. And then what happens is, is that now you have people that understand each other moving together to live in these different areas. And so Ezekiel is using them by that same name and saying this is where everybody went and this is where they settled. And that's really important. So he's going back to their original names. So no matter what it's called now or what the names were, we can always go back to where it was originally and those are the countries that are mentioned. So let's go back to the text. What are the nations that are mentioned? And I put some fill-ins in your notes. The first is Magog. Magog uh, refers to, kind of a quick understanding would be Russia, but it's all the area around uh, the Black Sea and eastward. And this would include states that were part of the former Soviet Union, like Kazakhstan, um, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, um, Tajikistan, and of course, uh, parts of Afghanistan as well. If you ever go to China and visit the Great Wall of China, the Chinese people don't call it the Great Wall of China. They call it the Wall of Magog because it was created to, to uh, keep the people of Magog, the people of Russia, out of China. The second, company, uh, the second group that we have is, is Rosh. And this is where the word Russia comes from, is from this word Rosh. Now, the thing that's important to note is that when Ezekiel is writing this 2,600 years ago, Russia, or Magog, was nothing. They weren't a player on the world stage at all. In fact, if we fast forward to even 500 years ago, Russia was not a player on the world stage at all. 200 years ago, Russia was nothing. It's really only the last 100 years that Russia enters the world stage as a major player with alliances all over the world. And Ezekiel was foretelling this 2,600 years before it happened. Um, we're going to talk about uh, their friendship with Turkey. I'm going to talk about that in a minute, but let's talk about the next two, Meshach and Tubal. Meshach and Tubal are references to Russian uh, cities. One is Meshach refers to Moscow. Tubal refers to a city uh, called Tubalsk. Now you might be thinking like, okay, pastor, listen. Um, Rosh is Russia and Meshach is Moscow. Does, aren't you just saying that because they sound similar? Well, uh, let me explain this. Is that remember, Genesis chapter 10 gives us the names of these families, the names of these tribes that settled in these areas, which is why they are given that name. The other thing that you have to understand is that, once again, it doesn't matter what the name is, right? And so if I can go back to the map, this is Rosh, but it doesn't matter if it's called McDonald's, right? It doesn't matter because it's the area that they, that they settled, that those original people, those original tribes uh, settled in, and that's what they were called for thousands of years. The other thing that's important, and this is quoting one of my favorite theologians, John Walvoord, the late John Walvoord. He said this, in the study of how ancient words come into modern, modern language, it's common for the consonants to remain the same and for the vowels to be changed. In the word rosh, simply changing the vowel O to U, it becomes the root word uh, of the modern word Russia with a suffix added. Now, so the other thing that's important to remember is, is that Hebrew is a language that was developed without vowels. It was just consonants. Every Hebrew word is, it begins with just three consonants and then you build from there. Vowels were added later so that the person reading it would know how things were pronounced. And so um, I was able, John Walvoord, who I mentioned, who was the chancellor of Dallas Theological Seminary for like 50 years, uh, I spent five days with Walvoord uh, before he died in 2002. And um, I was talking to a pastor one day 
And uh, this is, once again, I was, like, I was like 25 years old. And he said that he had just had Walverd at his church. And I said, how in the world did you get Walverd? He goes, I just called Dallas Theological and said, could I talk to John Walverd? And then they put, him through, they put me through to his line. He picked up the phone. And I said, oh, I'm calling right now. So I called and I said, I want to talk to John Walverd. And I got his voicemail. And I'm like, man. Anyway, an hour later, Walverd calls me back. And, I, and I, I was so, you know, people get excited about like, you know, actors and whatever. I don't know why. I don't know why people get excited about actors. It's like, dude, they don't even know what to say. Someone has to tell them what to say, right? So, I really appreciate when you said that. Like, well, that's what the paper said, you know. Anyway, but Walverd is just such an amazing mind. Anyway, so I was like 26 when I uh, spent, I spent five days with my only regret is that I was 26 when I spent five days with him. I wish I could have spent time with him now. I think I'd ask better questions. But um, anyway, but that's how language gets introduced and develops. So uh, my last name, I, I have an uncle uh, who I'm named after. And so my uncle Robert is our family historian, and he's really gone deep into the history of our last name, where our family originates from. So my, my family actually originates, and he's tracked it back to uh, the fifth, 14th century, I think, um, he's tracked us back to the 14th century in France because um, Franquist, and that's kind of the Americanized way to say it, Franquist is how you'd say it in Spanish. But when my family back in the 14-whatevers um, moved, that we lived in France and we moved, we emigrated from France to Spain. And so what happened was, and by the way, for all the smack I talk about the French, um, it's okay, they're my people, all right? So just don't worry. I'm like, I can't believe he doesn't like the French. Hey, man, I can talk about the French because... 15 generations ago, that was us. So anyway, it's okay. So anyway, so here's what happens, is that apparently, this is according to my uncle and his research, and so uh, my family immigrated to Spain, but the, but the Spaniards, the Spaniards had a name for people who immigrated from uh, France to Spain. They called them Franchi, F-R-A-N-C-H-Y. And so that was um, Franchi became Frenchy, became Franchi, and then when my family moved to Cuba a hundred years ago, it became Franquis and, and, uh, or Frankies. And that's uh, because that's how, whenever words, proper names, get translated or transliterated into other languages, there is, uh, like Walvert says, there's issues, that, there's changes that happen uh, with vowels. So, anyway. All of that to tell you that that's how Rosh becomes Russia and Meshech becomes Moscow and Tubal becomes Tubal. So that's just the way it is. So let's talk about these next three countries, Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya. Persia, as I mentioned, is Iran. But by the way, they became Iran in 1935. They were only Iran until 1979 when the Islamic Revolution took place and they were, it was changed to the Islamic Republic of Iran. The leadership of Iran is aggressively anti-Semitic, aggressively anti-American. Another thing that's important to know about Persia or Iran is that their nuclear ambitions are being realized because of Russia. Uh, Russia is the one helping them build their nuclear facilities. Right now, there are more than a thousand Russian scientists living and working in Iran, working towards their, uh, to realize those nuclear ambitions. According to Mossad, which is Israeli intelligence, Iran has been supplying Russia with weapons in their war against the Ukrainians. Now, Iran is also the world's largest state sponsor of terrorism in the world. This is the question that people ask. And they're like, how did Hamas amass this level of weaponry so soon? And it, it's very simple to get there. Remember, our government just sent the Iranians $6 billion and said, you better use it for humanitarian purposes. And they're like, yeah, of course we're going to use it for humanitarian purposes. And then they go on the news and like, we're going to use it for whatever we want. Now we got the cash. And so, and now a month later, they start, you know, Hamas starts bombing Israel because, and by the way, this isn't just me. The Washington Post, uh, who never criticizes the current administration, confirmed that Iran was funding Hamas this week, I, I believe it was on Tuesday, uh, they, they confirmed it. Now, Ethiopia and Libya, now, if we can see that on the screen, uh, Ethiopia and Libya would also, uh, Libya was called Put originally, um, and then uh, Ethiopia, which would also include Sudan, uh, was called Kush. And um, so if you hear about anyone who's a Kushite, uh, those were people that were from that area of Ethiopia and um, Sudan. Now, this is very important because the Sudanese hate Israel. 
And so now when we say Ethiopia and Libya, this would also include a lot of North, Northern Africa. And here's what's of particular interest to us. If you remember back in 2011, when we were experiencing the Arab Spring, if you remember that, um, when the U.S. bombed Libya and Muammar Gaddafi uh, died, do you know who gave Libya the cash and resources to rebuild their country? Russia. And so they are very tight with the Russians because after the West bombed them, then um, Russia was there to help resource them. The area of Gomer. Gomer is the area what is today Poland, Germany, and the Czech Republic, uh, that area of uh, Europe. Togarma, and you'll see this uh, on, back on the map. Um, Togarma is uh, modern-day Turkey and would include, uh, would include all of that. And, um, and kind of like the surrounding areas like Armenia and whatnot. Now, uh, let's, I want to talk about Turkey for a second. Turkey is part of NATO, which means that they are technically an ally with the United States. Sweden wants to join NATO, but uh, Turkey says that they will not vote for, Na for Sweden to be included into NATO unless the uh, Americans agree to sell them, start selling the uh, Turkey weapons, especially these fighter jets that they just love and can't live without. The Americans are like, we are not going to arm another country in the Middle East. And so they are very upset about that. In fact, Turkey for the last few years has been threatening to leave NATO because Vladimir Putin and the Russians have been wooing them and they like the idea of joining with Russia and Iran. So I hope you're getting the picture of what the Bible says, and this is what we see happening geopolitically in our world, is that Russia is leading the charge with all of these allies accompanying her to uh, destroy Israel. And by the way, and I didn't say this in the other services because I didn't have time, but this is 1215 always gets a little bonus. But this is one of the things that people who study this stuff are looking at. If Russia wins the war in Ukraine, there will ultimately be, because this is what happened in Georgia, this is what happened in Crimea, this is what's happening now in Ukraine, they will ask the question, who's next? And this is what could um, further the conflict and, and, and push this to what we're reading about to happen. Okay, let, verse 7. So we, we, we know who the players are. Let's see what they want to do, all right? Look at what it says, verse 7. Prepare yourself and be ready. You and all your companies that are gathered about you and be on guard for them. After many days, you will be visited. In the latter days, you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. You will ascend, coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all your troops and many peoples with you. Thus says the Lord God, on that day it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind and you will make an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates to take plunder and to take booty and to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited and again, a people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods who dwell in the midst of the land. This is important. Verse 13. Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish, and all their young lions will say to you, have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty and carry away silver and gold to carry away livestock and goods and to take great plunder? Now, if you pause there and give me your attention. Now, the question then is, and here's where Ezekiel is now giving us the motive behind the attack. There's two reasons. The first is economic. The second is religious. And that's what's binding them together. Israel, let's talk about the uh, economic first. Israel is a wealthy country. They have water, which many Middle Eastern countries do not have. And when you live in the desert, water is life. They also have recently discovered oil in Israel that is worth billions if sold. To say nothing of the mineral content, um, the mineral content that's found just in the Dead Sea has been valued at trillions of dollars. Any country that would control the land of Israel would prosper economically. Now, let's talk about the religious reasons. All the countries that are mentioned here, and by the way, not primarily Russia, but all the other countries that are mentioned here are primarily Muslim. And the Islamic world is bent on destroying Israel. Why? 
because of jihad. Now, I know that many of you know jihad means holy war, but you have to understand that it's something, it's deeper than that. It's also a philosophy of how Islam progresses. The goal of jihad is to establish Islamic authority all over the world. Uh, once again, Islam teaches that Allah is the only authority and that all political systems must be based on Allah's teachings. The other thing that's important to note is that their belief is that once a land has been occupied by Islam, it remains Islamic land forever and must be reconquered. So when the Muslims took control of Israel during the Crusades and lost it towards the end of the 11th century, they firmly believe that it must be re that that land must be reconquered for Allah. And so the hatred, and this is one of the things that is so problematic about listening to, uh, you know, political pundits and commentators uh, that, that want to talk about this issue is that they just think that, well, these folks just have disagreements and we just got to get them to the table and get them to agree. And um, which, by the way, that was um, what Bill Clinton wanted to do in uh, 1994 when the Oslo Accords were signed with Yasser Arafat and um, Yitzhak Rabin. And so, and, and the whole idea was the establishment of a Palestinian state. The problem is, is, I'm getting ahead of myself, but okay. The problem is, and this is, yeah, I'm going to quote Yasser Arafat. He says, we do not want a Palestinian state next to Israel. We want a Palestinian state instead of Israel. The problem is, the fundamental issue here is religious in nature. They do not believe that Israel has a right to exist. And that is the fundamental problem. They do not believe Israel has a right to exist. And you can't negotiate with anyone who believes that you shouldn't exist. And that's why you can't understand Ezekiel 38 without understanding the Islamic influence. And I'll give you one teaching in particular uh, that... Uh, Muslims uh, believe something that's called, uh, they look forward to a leader that's called the 12th Imam. Uh, that is, the, there are 12 successors to Muhammad, and the 11 of them have been revealed. The 12th one was born in 869 AD, and according to Muslims, he was taken from the world, but will reappear to bring justice and peace and establish Islam throughout the world. This ma messianic figure is also called the Mahdi, M-A-H-D-I. And the Mahdi is... The way that they describe him is exactly how the Bible describes the Antichrist. And I'll give you a couple of uh, definitions, uh, kind of how they describe him. Number one, he'll rule for seven years. Number two, he'll make a seven-year peace treaty with Israel. Number three, he will invade many countries. Number four, he will seek to implement Sharia law. And by the way, that's what Daniel 7 is about. Daniel 7.25, when it says, and he will speak pompous words, the Antichrist against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. This changing of the calendar and changing of laws to Sharia law, this is important. You know, you can know what a faith believes and what they hold most uh, in highest regard by what they honor in their calendar. Uh, and I'll give you an example. The first uh, thing that is celebrated in the Jewish calendar is, remember, when the children of Israel came out of Egypt and they came to Mount Sinai, God said, I know this is the seventh month, but this will now be the beginning of months for you. So the first thing that's celebrated is the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, to celebrate redemption and freedom. That's how the Jewish calendar begins. And by the way, if you want to know where the Christian calendar begins, it starts a few weeks from now uh, at the end of November. Uh, the Christian calendar begins with Advent. Four weeks where we begin to prepare our hearts to celebrate the coming, the incarnation of God in the flesh, the Lord Jesus. That's where we begin. The calendar ends at the beginning of November, November 1st, and what's celebrated is All Saints Day. All Saints Day is a holiday that in more traditional churches uh, historically has been celebrated where we celebrate all of God's people throughout the ages, whether they were famous or not, but all of God's people, all the saints, um, who worked towards moving the kingdom of God and furthering the kingdom of God in their time, in their place in the world um, since the beginning of church history. Now, so then the question is, where does Islam's cal calendar begin? Islam's calendar is based on the career of Muhammad, not the founding of Islam at Mecca. It begins at the time of his military conquests. Why? Because Islam is first and foremost a political military enterprise at its core. 
Number five, the Mahdi, by the way, he will hate Israel. In fact, one of the things they teach is that there will be a real Mahdi and a fake Mahdi. And the way that you're going to know who the real one is, the real one will hate the Jews. The fake one will love the Jews and seek to save them. If you read Matthew 24 and 25 and Revelation chapters 11, 12, and 13, you will see that this describes the Antichrist plans to wipe out Israel. Now does it make sense when Jesus opens the conversation about his, his, his disciples are like, hey, what happens with the end of the world? And what's, what's going to be the sign of your coming? The first thing he says is, take heed that no one deceives you. That's the first thing. For many people are going to come in my name saying, I am the Christ, or literally, I am the anointed one and will deceive many. Now listen, I am trying to explain to you what we believe compared to what, what they believe. But, and I'm sorry, and I'm sorry if this is offensive, but I just cannot buy the rhetoric that Islam is a religion of peace. And, um, and, 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 and I'll tell you why, and I understand why people want to believe that. And by the way, that doesn't mean that I don't believe that there are peaceful Muslims. Of course there are peaceful Muslims. But that, once again, that is not the theology and that is not the teaching of uh, Islam. And political, you know, politicians will get up and tell us, you know, Islam is a religion of peace. And, you know, why would, it, you know, a politician would never lie to us. And, uh, but, you know, the, the, the problem is the people who believe that just do not understand the fundamental motivations behind Islam. And, and, and here's, and I'll give you an example. In the 80s, this happened a couple of times where there was a misguided Christian who decided, because he hated abortion so much, and he thought he was doing the Lord's work, that he decided to bomb an abortion clinic. And, and you know what happened? The Christian community immediately came out and denounced what he was doing, saying, look, we believe that um, abortion is horrible, and we'll do everything we can to end it and save the lives of children, but this is not the way you do it. You don't go, you don't like kill people to, and then say, God told me to do it. That's not the way we do it. That's not Christian. That's not Christian teaching. That's not what Jesus taught. The Christian community denounced it immediately. It's been 20 years. Where was the Muslim community denouncing 9-11? Okay, where was the Muslim community denouncing the kidnapping, rape, murder, and beheading of children in Israel last week? They're silent. And once again, and I understand, well, that doesn't speak for everybody. I understand that. But it certainly speaks to the theological understanding. Why? Because jihad is, fun, is a fundamental part of Islam. Okay, three, three groups I want to talk about, uh, which is in the next page of your notes. Three groups that will protest what's happening in Israel. And the, the first group is called Sheba and Dedan. And let me, uh, if I can go back to this map. By the way, a friend of mine is the one who uh, showed me this map, and I said, hey, can you send it to me, and I will promise not to give you credit for it. And so anyway, but I do thank him for sending it to me. Sheba and Dedan is right here. This is modern-day Saudi Arabia. And uh, why are they going to protest? Do you know that right now, up until this, when this war started in uh, Israel, Israel and Saudi Arabia were working on peace accords, a uh, peace treaty between the two, the two countries. I want you to notice also that Egypt is not mentioned. Uh, the Jordanians are not mentioned. Why? Because uh, both of these countries as well, they have peace agreements with Israel. Uh, peace in Egypt was brokered in 1979 under the Carter administration and then um, with Jordan under, uh, in, in 1994. Now, so Saudi Arabia is going gonna, is gonna to complain about it. They're not going to be happy about it. Also, Tarshish. Now, who's Tarshish? Tarshish is an ancient name for England. In fact, it's a name that's still used whenever people want to wax poetic about England. They'll talk about the Isle of Tarshish, you know. And so, uh, and it says, and, and her young lions, or their young lions, depending on your translation. The lion, or what's called the British lion, is the symbol of the country of England, or the, the, it's a symbol of Great Britain, a symbol of Tarshish. Her young lions would be the offspring of England. That is the countries that were birthed by England. Now, people ask me all the time, and they'll say, well, whenever I talk about Bible prophecy, why is the United States not mentioned in Bible prophecy? Well, some of it is because I know we think we're the big superpower. We are not the superpower that we once were. Everything is shifting to the east, um, and it's only a matter of time before China overtakes us. More on that some other time. Um, and alliances with Russia, China, India, anyway, I can't even get into that, but I promise I will at some point. But my point is, is that um, this is probably, the Young Lions is probably the only possible reference to the United States in Bible prophecy. And these Young Lions would refer to uh, the United States, Canada, and Australia. And there is some debate on that. And I wouldn't like 
you know, that's not the hill I'm going to die on. But some people believe that. And I, and I think, you know, I think it's fine. Um, now, according to the passage, these young lions, Tarshish, Sheba, and Dedan are going to huff and puff but not do anything. The United States has been Israel's strongest supporter around the world for the last 70 years. But the world sees our weaknesses. We are a country that is $30 trillion in debt. And the, United, uh, the American people are tired of war. And by the way, anti-Semitism in America is at an all-time high. The Anti-Defamation League just released a report not that long ago, and they said that 2022 saw more incidents of anti-Semitism since the organization started tracking it in the 1970s. And by the way, this was up 30% from 2021. So things are going in the wrong direction, but there is coming a time when Israel will stand completely alone and the rest of the world will seek to pounce. Well, one person is going to stand with Israel, and we'll read about what he wants to do here in verse 18. Look what it says. And it will come to pass at the same time when Gog comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord God, that my fury will show my face. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath I have spoken. Surely in that day there will be a great earthquake in the land of Israel, so that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, and all creeping things that creep on the earth... And all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. The mountains shall be thrown down. The steep places shall fall. And every wall shall fall to the ground. I will call for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. And every man's sword will be against his brother. And I will bring to him judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on him, on his troops, and on many peoples who are with him, flooding rain, great hailstones, fire, and brimstone. Thus, I will magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and then they shall know that I am the Lord. Okay. At that moment when Israel stands alone, the Lord is going to fight for Israel and defeat this coalition of nations. Now, how is he going to do it? We read it a couple different things. He's going to use infighting. Every man will be against his brother. He's going to use natural disasters. He's going to use disease uh, to defeat the Magog invasion. Because, and, and, and the question is, well, why? And what's the point? Listen, even though Israel is back in their land, they are largely a secular society. And this is one of the events that God will use to turn Israel back to him. And my point is this, is that this could happen today. There is nothing stopping it from taking place. All of these countries are aligned together. They are all motivated with hatred for Israel. And the U.S. is powerless to stop it from happening. You know, the Apostle Paul, if he were to encourage us, I think he would say something like what he says in Romans chapter 13, verse 11. He says, and do this, understanding the present time, the hour is already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. See, one of the things that you'll find as we live in these last days is that the signs continue to grow in frequency and intensity. All of us have seen that. We've all, you know, taken our kids. We've done the three-hour drive to Disney World. And you know that there aren't that many signs for Disney and Broward. You'll see one in Palm Beach, you'll pass Stewart, and there might be another one there. But you know what happens? Then you get halfway, and you, you've, there, there's signs for something called Yeehaw Junction. Nobody really knows what that is. And, um, and as you get closer to Orlando, you know what you find? That the s number of signs increase, the size of the signs increase, and the closer you get, the stronger the frequency and the intensity of the signs. And my friends, the same is true with the return of Jesus. The closer we get, the more the signs of his coming increase in frequency and intensity. And my friend, this is why I teach Bible prophecy. Because it's important for us to be informed. You know, the Apostle Paul in his writings says that there's five things that Christians should not be ignorant about. And they are the five things that Christians are the most ignorant about. And one of them is that I don't want you to be ignorant about the coming of the Lord. And so we spend time talking about this. But there's another reason why. is because when David was anointed by God to be king, and Saul, the current king, had tried to kill him. Men started leaving Saul and coming to David because they believed that he was the true king of Israel. And it lists men who came over to serve militarily with David. And it notes one particular group that had a special skill. 
and you'll see it in your notes. It says, from Issachar, men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. These guys were able to look at the current landscape and say, we understand what's happening right now and we know what God wants us to do. Sometimes we make bad choices because we don't understand the times. We don't understand what God is doing. We don't realize that, the, that God has been, if we're looking for it, we can see what's happening. Now is the time for us to be like the sons of Issachar, to understand the time, to understand God's prophetic picture. And when we do, and we see what's happening in the world, the world begins to feel less and less out of control and more like things are moving in the direction that God said that they would. So my friends, listen, keep that in mind when you turn on the news. Keep that in mind when you hear about things that you never thought you'd see in your lifetime. Jesus is on the way. His return is closer than ever. And you might be, if you've been around for a while, you're like, Pastor, you've been saying that since the year 2000. Yes. And now it's 23 years closer than when I said it the first time. Why? Because all of this is happening for a purpose. For a purpose so that God's people, Israel, will open their eyes and see Jesus as the Messiah. And then that's when the prophetic promise that the Apostle Paul gave in the book of Romans will be fulfilled when he says, and then all Israel will be saved. Let's pray together. And Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for that, that you love your people, that you want to save your people, and you want your church to be ready and understanding of all that you're doing. Lord, we want to be like the sons of Issachar. We understood the times and we knew what to do. Help us in that. And we prayed in Jesus' name and everybody said, amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.